0: Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week we pick a different ingredient and say anything we can think of to say about that ingredient. Today, we're talking about chickpeas. If you've got any questions about chickpeas, you can call 235-7721 or email info at kbbi.org. My name's Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Terry Roble, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Chickpeas are one of the oldest cultivated crops in the world. Native to Turkey and Syria, the chickpea spread east and west, becoming an important food from Spain to India. It's the world's second most widely grown legume, behind only the soybean. Its English name has nothing to do with chickens. It derives from Latin. Chickpeas were an important food crop throughout the Italian peninsula and gave their name, Kikair, to a Roman family whose most famous member is known to us in English as Cicero. It was suggested to Cicero that he change his family name. Such a great man should not have such a humble name. He refused. It was further suggested by his political enemies that the name must have derived from an ancestor with a warty nose that resembled a chickpea, which strikes me as pretty absurd, considering that there were also prominent Roman families named after the lentil and the fava bean, suggesting that they had first attained prominence for producing important crops. From the Latin kikere, came the Italian ceci and the French chiche, which transformed across the English Channel into chickpea. Garbanzo is the modern Spanish word, which comes not from Latin but probably from Basque and is common in the U.S. in areas of strong Hispanic influence. India knows them as chana, and Indian chickpeas tend to be a smaller, darker variety called Desi chana, which means local in Hindi. The large yellow chickpea we in the West are more familiar with are called, in India, Kabulichana, after Kabul, Afghanistan, where the Indians got it from. Chickpea flour known as gram is used for all sorts of things in India, most famously the vegetable fritters known as bhaji or sometimes pakora. We'll get to those later. The most famous chickpea dishes in the U.S., of course, are Middle Eastern. Hummus is both the Arabic and the Hebrew word for chickpea, and the dish we call hummus Is a shortening of its full arabic name hummus bin tahini chickpeas with sesame paste and then there's falafel claimed by both israelis and palestinians as not only delicious but uniquely their own elsewhere in the arab world particularly egypt falafel is most commonly made from fava beans but in the region of israel and lebanon the chickpea version is dominant they've been making them there for as long as anyone knows And it's easy to find long and extremely heated discussions about whether falafel is mentioned in the Torah or arguing that it is an example of a conquering people taking the food of the people they conquered as their own. Plenty of people hear things like this and their reaction is to scoff. It's just food, they say. Who cares? It's on the surface an appealing attitude, dismissing the notion of cultural appropriation on the grounds that your background doesn't particularly impact your skill at making bean patties. But of course, this sort of thing matters. I'm originally from Louisiana and have been party to heated conversations about the travesties that bear the name of gumbo or jambalaya elsewhere, often from the same people who also get enraged by the notion that a Mexican might have a beef with white hipsters running a taco wagon. Food is fuel, sure, but it's always worth remembering that something as simple as a bean fritter can mean a good deal more and that Whether it's a New Yorker getting testy about pizza, or someone from Wisconsin insisting that it's not an old-fashioned without brandy, most of us have some food or another. We draw these lines around. No matter how much we insist, we don't. Here we are in the KBBI studios. You are listening to the first episode of Check the Pantry. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am joined here in the studio with Homer's very own food columnist at the Homer News, the legendary Terry Roble. Good morning, Terry.
1: Good morning, Jeff.
0: I'm very excited for you to be here. I'm very happy to have you as the guest on the first show, on the I'm, very first show.
1: I'm honored. Thank you.
0: Well, let's get right to it. We're talking about chickpeas today, mostly because you know I want to. I'm, I'm picking dishes that that go with seasons. And chickpeas are not the first thing you would think of in, during fall, but we start going to a lot of indoor parties this time of year, and we start eating a lot of dips that people bring. And what we're trying to do today, if we do nothing else, we're going to be talking about a lot of different ways of cooking chickpeas, but if we do nothing else, we want to, make, we want to solve the problem and stop you bringing bad hummus to places. Oh, so let's hummus. talk about hummus Hummus. What do you do? You like do you like hummus, Terry? Who doesn't? I love hummus. Who doesn't like hummus?
1: You know, I I love it because it's such a versatile dip. You can eat it with crackers, pita bread, vegetables.
0: So, not long ago, I was reading uh, this book. There's this guy named Michael Solomonoff. He's got a restaurant, in, I can't remember if it's in London or New York. Um, and you know, hummus. He was talking about hummus as like this really personal thing. And he was talking about exactly how to make the best hummus. And he told and he said something that has totally changed my views on hummus, and now, because I used to make it, and I was like, "Man, it's good, you know it's fine, but it's not that great." Until he said, "The secret to making good hummus is purely using almost as much tahini as you use chickpeas." And as soon as I started dumping huge quantities of tahini into my hummus, my hummus improved.
1: You like tahini?
0: that I- you don't like tahini. I-
1: I, it's okay. I, th- I think it's a little rich for my tummy, but it doesn't matter. It needs to be in there. I like my hummus with lemon and plenty of salt and plenty of roasted cumin, a little dash of smoked paprika. There's all kinds of ways you can dress this up, but there's nothing that beats the basic hummus.
0: Yeah, because I usually make mine, you know, we were talking earlier about... You know, you, you look and people will have, oh, it's carrot and jalapeno and, you know... Yeah, they'll
1: look fun.
0: Oyster, hummus, and like whatever, you know, like people... <laughs> people look at something like hummus and they're like, God, it's just some mashed up chickpeas with some tahini and some garlic and some salt. That's that's kind of boring, you know, like we have to jazz it up. But then if you take the time and you make it right and you make it like with a, with a ton of hummus or with a ton of uh, of tahini and a lot of garlic... It's a really simple thing, but it's got so much, like, potent, exciting. It's it's almost, like, excitingly mild. There you go. You know?
1: I, I don't know. I, I have a tendency to want to one-up everything just because, um, you know, it's like, how can I make this better or more interesting or more fun because I know there's going to be other hummus at this party, but I want my hummus to be the
0: best. Well, you know what? Here's another thing you can do. We talked about this a couple of days ago. Uh is garlic right yeah raw garlic and we were having this conversation yep. about how a lot of times like raw garlic you know if you're making a vinaigrette or you're making any mm-hmm. a hummus or any kind of dish that has a lot of raw garlic in it and you eat it and you're like god it's it's good but it's like hot. almost hot but it's like uh-huh. it's like a bad heat you know it's like a bitter yeah. heat. yeah where you're like this is just like too aggressive you know almost yeah. like sandpaper across your tongue Ooh, i like that yeah well, you don't like it, but no.
1: But I like how you <laughs> describe that. And my family aren't; they're not huge garlic lovers. So, anyway, I can sneak a little in? So, tell me what you would suggest. This is what you
0: do with raw garlic. All right, marinate it in acid for a little bit. Lemon juice, whatever your, whatever acid is in your dish. If if you're making a vinaigrette, if you're making like hummus where you're gonna put lemon juice in it, um, if you if you let that garlic sit in acid for a little while. It doesn't take long, like five, 10 minutes uh-huh. before you add it to the dish. It tempers that. It totally cuts all that. There's, there's enzymes in the garlic uh-huh. that are responsible for the, that hot, aggressively bitter sort of feeling of garlic. And if you soak those enzymes in acid, it denatures them. And then you just get like this beautiful pungent garlic flavor. But it's not like it's not aggressive anymore. What and a it doesn't great, hurt.
1: great hint!
0: And it works really good in like vinaigrettes and and hummus and anything like that. It just kills it right away, and and it's 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 one of those things that a lot of people that think that they don't like garlic. Mhm. Suddenly they're like, wait a minute.
1: Have you? You know, we were talking about this earlier, and the local, homegrown garlic is so far superior
0: it's pretty unreal
1: it, it, it's it's a whole different
0: taste it's aromatic you know yes. it's got like almost floral scents. it's it's hot but it's not uh-huh. it's not painful you know it's, and it's one of those really simple things that in something especially something like a hummus where there's only right you know really I mean the the basic recipe is all it is is mashed up chickpeas tahini mm-hmm. a little olive oil some salt and some garlic and lemon juice and mm-hmm. that's I mean when you get right down to it, that's all it is. But if you take, if every one of those ingredients is as good as you can get, and if you use it in the right proportions, it takes this really simple, like, bean mush. I mean, that's all it is. It's some mushed up beans, you know? like. <laughs> Give them more
1: credit than that. <laughs> well, but that's the
0: point, you know? It's like, it, all it is is this really simple thing, But but somehow, if yeah. you just treat every little bit of it just right, you get this transcendent. Ooh. Yeah.
1: But isn't that true in everything you cook? If you start with the best of everything, even if it's just three ingredients that go into this dish, it's going to be far, far superior than if you didn't.
0: Yeah. And you just treat them right. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. hummus is hummus is great because you can take like you can make a really simple everyday hummus with canned chickpeas and a little bit of tahini, you know, and a little bit of garlic and a little bit of salt. and, And it'll be great for every day. But then this guy, this Michael Solomonov guy that I was telling you about, he also, he's pretty insistent on another point, which is that he wants you to cook your chickpeas from, from, from dried. And he wants you to, to use baking soda, because if you cook beans in baking soda, it makes them creamier. Mm -hmm. And then he wants you to take your, well, (laughs) then after you cook them, he wants you to run your hands through the beans. So the skins all float up to the top and take all the skins off. And then he wants you to take your beans and mash them through a sieve to get any last bits of, of skin off. And only then when you've got nothing but like pure creamy bean puree. Then he wants you to take that and weigh that much out of tahini. And now you've got like the greatest hummus in the world. And it's all the same stuff. It's just you've taken it every step. You've taken it a little dif- a little further, you know. And <laughs> now you've turned this really simple thing that started out with just some canned chickpeas that were mashed up and you've turned it into like this world-class dish that people ooh and awe ah over and makes you famous.
1: He, he must have um, a lot of time on his hands and no kids.
0: I think what he has is a restaurant where he's got a ton of uh, cooks Help. and he <laughs> says, hey, hey you, spend, you the next hour, spend the next hour doing that.
1: But I'm such a foodie person. I would want to just try it that way to compare it to the basic way just to see if it was
0: worth it well you know the 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 big challenge in that like is i love i i love cooking beans but i always have to plan ahead absolutely because i have to you know like usually you have to soak them overnight but you were telling me and i know i should do this but i do not have a pressure cooker
1: um the instapot thing is an amazing um
0: because you can cook them from like dried in no time yeah
1: Oh, everything I mean, it's it's a neat little gizzy for the kitchen. I highly recommend them. Um, wintertime is a great time to get that thing going. Um roasts, lots of stuff. But yeah, you sort and rinse them. You put them in your instapot with the onion, maybe a little roasted cumin, ancho chili powder curry, whatever you're gonna use these beans in, maybe chunk of ham, you know. Um, cook on full pressure forty minutes. Um, add a little salt. Oh, and don't forget your water. So, um, 40 minutes,
0: 40 minutes from dried, which is like yeah. pretty amazing. Cause you know, I mean, it takes an hour and a half with, with, with overnight soaked beans yeah. to be able to cook them. And I do it all the time, but uh, I wish that I really wish I had a pressure cooker because you know, you can't, it's not the kind of thing where you wake up at, at noon and you go, wow, well, you know, I really want some beans tonight. <laughs> <'Cause>,
1: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe Santa will bring you one.
0: <laughs> we do have a question. Uh, an email to us, I believe, from Findlay. What is tahini? Well, tahini is roasted and ground-up sesame paste. It's basically peanut butter, except you make it with sesame seeds. And it's, it is, uh, it is the, the main component in, well, it's the, it's the other component in the original Arab uh, name, hummus bin tahini, chickpeas with sesame paste. And he would also like to know if miso, if you could use miso in making hummus. And, you know, you would get, it's pretty different. Um,
1: but why not?
0: What, I mean, you could definitely try it. I, I would. It, it would be a very different uh, flavor profile, but I don't see But it. why not? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the great thing. You know, one of the things I love about cooking is like, you wonder something like that, and you go, well, I haven't really thought of that before, but you try it. Guess what? If it's gross... Throw it out. Yeah.
1: Chickpeas are it's probably not affordable. Gonna,
0: it's probably not going to kill you.
1: No. Miso is a, a neat thing. I, I have been doing a lot of um, reading about it. And, anyway, but yeah, Finley, give it a try. Let us know.
0: So now let's say that you're, you've, you've soaked all these wonderful chickpeas overnight. And then the next day you wake up and you go, God, ah, you know, I thought I was going to make hummus or I thought I was going to make a stew with them. I don't want to do that.
1: What do you want? What are you craving? You well, want...
0: now I've got all these, ch- these soaked chickpeas, and now I'm thinking maybe what I should do is put them in the food processor and run that food processor for a while and get this nice ground up chickpeas. And then we're going to make falafel. We are. All right. Because, and let me say this before we start talking about okay. falafel. Because I have seen a lot of, uh, I've seen every, I read a lot of food forums on the internet, you know, and every month, pretty much on every single one of them. Somebody will, will say, I tried to make falafel, and it was terrible. I put them in the oil, and they all fell apart. And the very first question that you have to ask somebody when they say that is, did, did you, you use... use canned? or Yeah, or cooked. Yeah. And they always say 100% of the time, yes. Uh-huh. And it doesn't work. You have to use soaked yep. but, but uncooked chickpeas and a lot of mint.
1: Mint. I have that growing in my garden yet.
0: Doesn't everybody? <laughs> oh, I just all right, planted. Fine. I
1: thought it was special. I just
0: planted a tiny like two mint plants earlier this year, yeah. and now like I have they're weeds. giants of, of mint plants. But oh. that's actually good because I get to use them in falafel.
1: Oh. I, I like them in desserts and cocktails.
0: They are good in desserts and cocktails, <laughs> but they're also really good in, in Middle Eastern food.
1: Yes, I know. I know. Mint. Falafel. Um it's fried. You could fry a shoe and it'd be good, but no, i t- falafel is a lot, a lot of wonderful things going on in this little ball of goodness. Right.
0: It, it, it is. And we're going to be talking about frying a little bit here in just a minute, because we have a very special recipe segment where Terry and I actually did a little cooking together, but let's talk about, let's, let's expand on frying a little more because a lot of people get sort of nervous about it. And, uh, yeah. So tell me, tell me what your procedure is at home when you, when you go to fry. Because you say you usually you fry a lot of halibut mostly. We do.
1: Yeah, it. we do halibut, lean cod, um, sea bass. Um, you know, I mean, I'm from. Do you, Was- have, a, do
0: you have a deep fryer? Or I, do you have- I,
1: you know, I do have a deep fryer, and you know, it just depends on who I'm cooking for and how many I'm cooking for. If it's just my family, I get my very heavy. Um, um, saucepan, like saucepan, stockpot kind of thing out, and and you know use it, use that. If there's a lot of people that we are entertaining, and we Mark's got this really great system where he gets the the crab burner out, and he's got this huge cast iron skillet, and oh, he keeps the the temperature gauge in it, so it it's just perfect. He can make a lot of halibut really quickly and really perfectly. Um and then I've got one of the little deep fryers that you can get on, you know, online or at Fred Meyer's or whatever. And I'm not real fond of that. Um
0: You don't like the deep fryer?
1: Um, not so much. Um it's kinda hard to regulate the heat a little bit and it's a lot of messing around with it when you're done with your frying because i want to keep my oil clean and i want to store it and what if i don't defry again for a couple weeks you know so i got to mess around cleaning this thing and and filtering this oil and and it's a lot of oil so i don't use it a whole lot so usually it's just just the hubs and i and i just use the saucepan in the house and i can strain the oil when i'm done but um yeah, just depends on how many people you're cooking for on that.
0: It does because you know frying takes a lot. Even even for something simple like falafel, it's like I do make it a lot, and I usually pan fry it as opposed to deep frying. Yeah, it. Yeah, and that's um, easy. Yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, you you don't use near as much oil, but it's still no. you know what I generally do with my oil is 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 after I fry it out, then I'll I'll strain it. The like the right. handy one of the handiest kitchen tools that I have. Is a little strainer. Oh, yeah. You know, like it's not even very big. It's maybe like four inches across. I know what you're talking
1: about. With the fine mesh on yeah, it. With yeah, with the
0: fine mesh and a little handle. And you can put it over the top mm-hmm. of things. And it sits there while you pour pour stuff through it. And if you if you strain out your oil every time you fry, right, you know, and get all the little bits out, it lasts a lot longer. And the other thing I do is I keep my used frying oil in the fridge. So do I. You know, because if uh-huh. you leave it outside at room temperature, it'll oxidize. Right. And then you get like off... weird rancid off flavors
1: and you you don't want to use that oil over too many times i i don't know do you have a a count i usually do no Mm, no i
0: don't really count so much as you just kind of look at the color you know once it gets too dark because the thing is like and and this is definitely a thing from like restaurants like you always know like when you first start oh yeah when you first start it's never as good you know you have to it needs a it needs to fry a few times before it really starts getting the nice brown color on the food Yes. And then at a certain point, all of a sudden, it starts to break down and it gets that weird, like fishy almost, mm-hmm. you know, sort of aroma and, mm-hmm. and smell that's not so good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the ideal frying, you know, you want to have fried in it at least a couple times and then oh, it's better.
1: It's like a season.
0: Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh-huh. You do kind of have to season the oil.
1: Do you have a, a preference on what kind of oil you like to fry in, Jeff? Well, I
0: mean, if. <laughs> if, if this was the perfect world, I would just use duck fat for everything.
1: Well, there you go.
0: But like for something like falafel, you know, when I'm making it, I'm, I'm trying to be at least a little like, I'm not, I wouldn't, you're not trying to be healthy when you're eating falafel, but at least I want to like, I'm eating something that's not super meaty, you know? Right. So I just use, I like, I like canola oil, you know? Yeah, for, it works great. It's I affordable. Mean, <laughs> I know like, I know like a lot of really fancy places will use like rice bran oil or safflower oil or all that, but they're expensive yeah so it's peanut oil yeah peanut you know? oils
1: are very expensive it, and I it's know.
0: like you know i mean it's it's fine and it definitely there are very small marginal differences
1: there is yeah um but deep deep frying the falafel you know oh. what
0: they you know what they put on falafel in egypt no when you get your pita you have a choice but you can get them both too one is salad which is like lettuce and tomatoes and some vegetables the other is chips french fries it's great. And it's awesome. You get a big pita <laughs> with, with, that's piled with like balls of falafel and then salad all over the top of that. And then I can't remember what sauce they use because it's been, uh, that was 30 years ago almost. And then a big pile of French fries right on top.
1: Oh, there you go. My family would love that. Carbs on carbs.
0: <laughs> so let's, let's, let's move on in our frying discussion. Okay. And in our cultural discussion to a completely different around we'll keep we'll keep traveling the equator and we'll get around to India and we're going to talk about onion bhaji which are onions mixed with a spiced batter made out of chickpea flour and fried they're classic Indian street food and Terry and I got together in the kitchen of station 12 to fry up a batch
1: Oh, I
0: love gas. Now we're cooking with gas.
1: Now we're cooking. My mom always said that.
0: What I'm doing is I am... That is the sound of me shaking a pan, a dry pan, no oil, with some cumin and some black and white peppercorns on a nice hot fire. Yep. And all I'm doing is I'm toasting till I can smell them. And we're there. And we're there.
1: See, it was that quick. So simple that quick and it, it makes all the difference. Just like um, toasting nuts for yep. a recipe, it brings out so much more flavor.
0: You should toast your nuts 100% of the time. Absolutely. And it, <laughs> I didn't have a mortar and pestle for a long time. Me neither. And then I got one and now I use it constantly. It's like, it sits right next to my sink and, and I'm just always reaching for it. Not just for grinding spices.
1: And it's heavy, You're, you know it's a, a, a stone sort of a. I used to take, before I had one, sometimes I put spices in a Ziploc bag and roll them over with my marble <laughs> rolling pin. Yeah. Well. I've done that too. Don't do that. It doesn't much. work. No, it
0: doesn't. I mean, it sort of works. Okay, here
1: comes the garlic.
0: Garlic and ginger.
1: And ginger. Oh my gosh, this is going to smell amazing. We need smell vision.
0: So I got a nice paste here. Nice. This contains part, some of the yogurt that is going to go in the recipe. Okay. And, uh, Now I guess it's time to add it to the onions.
1: Excellent. Oh, I can't wait to try this.
0: Okay, so I've got my onions. They are sliced. I could have sliced them thinner. I almost sliced them on the mandolin. So they're
1: like little moon, little half moon. You
0: pre-salted them.
1: Yes, and you tell me that now how, so we got about the equivalent of what, one onion in there?
0: There is one onion in here.
1: And about how much salt did you use?
0: Uh, Enough. (laughs)
1: okay right there um, so,
0: what what uh, the, the main binder in this is chickpea flour which right why we're doing it on the chickpea episode uh, <laughs> which is called gram it's gram flour, it's gram in, flour. in india
1: G R A M.
0: but here we're using garbanzo bean flour is what it says but That's it's right. the same stuff
1: and it's relatively um um inexpensive um, it's a, a sweeter flour. It's high in fiber and protein.
0: So we are heating up oil.
1: Heating up oil. Okay, so we got to...
0: Terry, I know we, we were we were discussing this, and you're pretty old school. You don't really like thermometers for testing your oil temperature. You don't need them. It's not that you don't like them; it's that you don't need yeah,
1: them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like to know. I mean, I like the accuracy of them, and you know, I think starting out when I was cooking. I didn't have a lot of money, and there wasn't money for extra things like a thermometer. and um, So you just kind of had to kind of wing it. it. It's a time thing. You look at it, and the heat's been on a while, and, and maybe the oil is just starting to shimmer a little bit. Shimmering. Okay, right. so now
0: we're at 180. Okay. And that noise that you hear is, what I did is I shot a little, just a little shot of water in there. And this is how, you know, you you said you like to use batter, the way my mom taught me how mm-hmm. How to test your oil is to flick a little shot of water in. It. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the sound that it makes, and you can hear that it takes a minute for it to really start sizzling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it goes in, and there's like a pause, and then it kind of goes, pssst, but it's still sort of a low pitch sizzle, right? Mm-hmm. But as it heats up, you can hear it, it starts to sizzle a little faster, and the pitch keeps going up. So mm-hmm. right now, I am at 341 degrees.
1: Getting close.
0: And this is what that sounds like.
1: Mm -hmm. You're great. All right. All right, so now you're You're going to do a tester. A tester.
0: It's a good thing. Frying stuff is is a little like pancakes. It's a good idea to to, to, to try one, especially something like this where the consistency of the batter is really important. Yeah,
1: all right, be careful when you're putting it in, ever so gently. Okay, it looks perfect. It looks like it's just frying perfect. It's getting a little golden and crispy. Oh, that looks fabulous. You know, with
0: small stuff like this, once it's colored, it's it's done. done.
1: Yeah, and then we have a taste test coming up. It just looks amazing, and I'm gonna put this in my mouth right now. So excuse me. Mmm, excellent.
2: Yeah, I could eat a lot of these.
0: I'm still thinking about those, honestly. I, I was like, man. Those are really good. They are so good. They're like Indian onion rings, you know? Yeah, except that's like, what I thought of. Except with more onions.
1: Yeah. Oh, yours are, yours. I loved the, how you, you salted the onions to bring out the moisture and then it gave it a little more onion flavor.
0: Yeah. That's a little, it's a little thing I like to do with a lot of vegetables, you know, especially with something like that where they cook really fast. You know I mean? I think mm-hmm. how long do those take to cook? What, by the time we put them in, like what, 20 seconds, 30 if seconds? that, yeah. You know, and so like, that's not very much time for an onion to soften. So unless you're slicing them super, super thin, then it's still going to be kind of crunchy and crispy. Whereas if you want them to come out nice and tender, if you salt the onions or any vegetable, because those those bhaji, and actually it depends on which language you, you're speaking in, because the other one, they're also known as pakora. Right. And they're basically the same thing. It's chickpea flour yogurt batter with a bunch of spices in it. They make them with like everything. Like the potato version is a really famous one. Ooh, that'd be good. And I'm actually not, I, I'm i pretty sure they, they just uh, like almost grate their potatoes. So it's almost like... And use them raw, so it's almost like a like a roasty, like a uh, yeah, Swiss potato pancake.
1: They probably yeah, they I'm sure they rinse them and they squeeze them dry. But I did notice um, I had made the bhajis the night before, and I didn't soak my onions, and there was a big difference. I I totally recommend salting your onion, and they're more pliable. Yeah, more you flavor. were saying
0: you were saying the ones that you would... We used a we used a recipe from uh, the very legendary Indian cook Madhur Jaffrey, who she was actually she was a she was a Bollywood actress, and then Whoa. she she moved to uh, Britain and she was in a bunch of like British films as well. But then while she was there, she started, um, she, started she started became a uh, like the British authority on Indian food which is why I got her recipe because sure. she's awesome. It and is she's great. actually we're we're going to talk now that we're talking about Indian food, we're going to talk about curries in just a minute. And she's pretty much where I learned how to make a curry too. But um uh, so you but you used her recipe basically as it was written. I did. And, uh, and you thought it was a little, a little dense?
1: It was, well, you know, I think maybe it had a lot to do with maybe my onions. I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, when I first mixed it up, I thought it was too dense. It wouldn't um, come nicely off the spoon into the oil. So I, I added a little more yogurt. Yeah. Um, yogurt, though, made it to me the batter seem a little softer. Um, maybe I should have used water.
0: Yeah, that's possible too. Because a lot of times people think something like water, they're like, oh, oh water, you can't use water, there's no flavor. But right. you know what? It, it has that consistency. And actually, when I was making that hummus, what I do now a lot of times, because I, I buy the tahini that comes in a can, right. and the oil is always separated, you know, like natural peanut butter. So mm-hmm. you'll get like a layer of this really dense like tahini paste, and then a layer of sesame oil on top of it. And the easiest way to mix it back together is throw it in the food processor. And so I was doing that. And then one day I was like, well, what if I just made like a hummus base out of this so that all I have to do when I want to make hummus is throw a can of chickpeas and some of this in there. But then there's a Syrian sauce called terator, and they make a variant of it all over. Like every Middle Eastern country basically has a a version of it. And what it is, it's almost like a, it's almost like goddess dressing really. Right. Like it's lemon juice, garlic, salt, and tahini. And then you thin it just with enough water to make to make it not quite. It's almost like a mayonnaise consistency. Which the first way that I had it was in a was in a chicken dish. It was a cold chicken dish with this stuff on it. But okay. those are also the ingredients of hummus. So if you just have this stuff laying around, you just dump it in the hummus. Like a base.
1: What's it called again?
0: Territor. 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 <laughs> t a r a t o r. Yeah. Well, there's actually. <laughs> territory is the Syrian version of that, but then they use the same word for a bunch of different other things in different countries. It's one of those deals where you're like, you're looking for one thing and suddenly you're going down all these little rabbit holes. And But yeah. anyway, back to the water point. Yes, you can. Yeah. if you're, If your batter is too thick, use water. Don't worry about like, you know oh it's it doesn't taste like anything it's not there to taste like something it's there for consistency no
1: there was already enough going on in in those that it didn't need any more flavor the spice mixture was perfect the aromatics were perfect you had some cilantro in it yep um that little bit of green color good eye appeal as well um and yeah it was they were tasty
0: little buggers i know i i would- what do you, what would you, what would you serve it with? Cause if I feel like, you know, if I was going to serve it at like a, like a dinner party or something, I'd want like some sort of yogurt dip or.
1: You could do that. You could do like a tzatziki. Um, I found a, like a tomato chili, um, cold type thing. You don't cook that sounded really good with it. You could do like a herb, um, yogurt mixture. Maybe how about a little lime juice instead? You know? Um, Yeah. And a beer.
0: <laughs> it beer, sounds
1: like a good appetizer. Beer is, beer's like beer. the,
0: beer's like the universal sauce. It goes with everything. Go. I
1: was even thinking, you know, I, I put beer in my my batter for my fish. I thought, well, if there's a beer open while I'm making these, well, I'll just put a little beer in it to thin it out. Why it, not?
0: It's funny that you that you mentioned beer being like a sauce because that'll come into play later in the show. Excellent. So let's talk about now that we're in India and it's hot. It is hot. It's 50 degrees, and it's the middle of October. I know. It's basically... We basically live in India now. So so now (laughs) that...
1: (laughs) I live in India? Oh, my gosh. This is a little extreme. Okay, let's come back down to it. So now that
0: we live in India, we're going to talk about making curry.
1: Okay.
0: Because chana masala is, like, the the, probably the most famous Indian chickpea dish, and it's just curried chickpeas. Yeah. And it's really, really simple to make. Masala... In, in, in uh, Hindi, just means spice blend. So like garam masala, which was one of the components of of uh, the, the bhaji that we made.
1: Right. That was in the recipe.
0: Yeah. That's just all that is, is that garam masala means that particular spice blend. Well, it's not even a, because every Indian grandmother makes it her own way. That one usually contains like nutmeg, cloves, coriander, usually some cumin, uh, cardamom a lot of times. You know, it, it depends on the person. Cinnamon. Yeah. So chana masala just means literally translates as chickpeas with blended spices. And you start out exactly like you start out making a ton of other curries, you know, uh, because making a curry is a little like you know, if you if you're cooking French, you start out you cook a mirepoix, you know, mm-hmm. onion, celery and carrots and you cook that in a bunch of butter until it gets soft and then you carry on making your recipe yeah. or if you're you know, if you're making Spanish food, then you do a sofrito, which is usually tomatoes and sometimes peppers, peppers uh-huh. and onions.
1: And then if you're from Louisiana, you make Trinity. You,
0: and if you're from Louisiana, you, 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 you make a Trinity, celery, bell pepper For, and onion.
1: Yep. there you go.
0: Well, if you're if you're Indian, you make you start out by making a curry base. It's not really what they call it because curry itself is like a British thing, you know,
1: it is. They don't really it no call matter.
0: it. They don't really call it exactly curry, even though they sort of make it the same way. But anyway, here's how you start with a ton of oil. It actually, when you look at a real authentic Indian recipe, and you're like, how much oil? It's a lot of oil. It's a lot of oil. Yeah. A lot of oil. Like, I mean, it'll be like a cup of oil for um, you know to serve maybe six people, uh-huh. eight people, something like that. The
1: recipe I have is like a cup and a half. Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. And, uh, and so then, but to go with your cup of oil, you go with a lot of onions too. Like, this is actually something that's very similar to Louisiana cooking because in Louisiana cooking, you start cutting onions and you're like, all right, I got enough onions. And then that means you (laughs) need at least one or two more onions. When you think you've got enough, you're like almost there. Yeah. And so they, they do, there's this technique that's, it's, it's unique to, to India. As far as I can tell, I don't think anybody else uses it. It's called brown frying onions. And I learned this from Matter Jaffrey. It's kind of like caramelizing. Oh, Yeah. Ooh.
1: Lots of flavor. So Lots of s- you're trying,
0: yeah, you're, you're trying to get the onions sweet, but it's also, you cook them hotter, you know, cause like when you're caramelizing uh-huh. onions, you cook them low and slow, right? It takes yes. like an hour. It's like kind of a, it's, it's a process. Mm-hmm. Well, this, it takes like 20 minutes still. It takes a long time, but you do them hotter. So you get them like half caramelized and half uh, browned, you know, almost like sauteing onions. Mm-hmm. And then you get, and then it's sweet, but it also has this like sort of aggressively like savory edge. So you do them on like medium to medium-high heat. You cook all, and you fry all your onions in this enormous quantity of oil.
1: In this really big pan.
0: Yes. I mean, some of the places like restaurant, you know, like Indian restaurants in, in Britain, they'll have like a giant pot, where they make the base gravy, they call it gravy for the, for the week and or for the, at least the next couple of days. And, and they make this, this curry base and then for every dish, they portion it all out. And then, you know, depending on what they're making, if they're making like a vindaloo or a masala or whatever they're making, they take a section of that and then they add all the rest of the ingredients to it. So like from this one huge thing of these spicy onions, you can make like 15 different dishes. But what you do is first you toast your spices, which you heard us doing, thanks to the magic of radio. You heard us doing that during the onion bhaji. Perfect. And so you toast them just till they're aromatic.
1: Quickly. Quickly, it happens really
0: fast. It does. It happens. Yeah. If there is really easy to burn them, so you got to watch them.
1: You have to smell them. As soon as you you smell that that fragrance, they're done.
0: Yep. And then you dump them. You know, nowadays a lot of times they use a spice grinder, but we were using mortar and pestle, which I've started using a lot because they're so easy to clean, you know? You just rinse them out real fast, and it's great. So you grind them all up, and then you mix them with a little bit of water because and what you're doing with the water is you're, you're keeping the spices from burning because if you throw them in the hot oil right away, then they'll burn. It's really uh, easy for them to yes. burn, and then they get bitter.
1: Good, good. I'm glad you shared that.
0: But if you throw them in with, with a little bit of water, it protects them while that water is cooking away. And it mellows everything out. And so then you wind up with this base of like onions and oil and, and the spices just permeate the oil. And you can use really whatever spices you want. You can use cumin. You can use dried chilies. Um, you can use coriander, fenugreek. A lot of Indian res- uh, mm-hmm. recipes use fenugreek, mm-hmm. black, black peppercorns, mm-hmm. anything you want, basically. Turmeric, if you want the color. Yes. Because it makes it nice and yellow. And then you just cook your chickpeas right in that. Or you can take already cooked chickpeas and dump them in.
1: Did, did we add ginger and garlic to this um, gravy?
0: Of course we do.
1: I knew that. All right. I just wanted to make sure everybody lots knew. And, lots
0: and lots of it. And then actually what I would probably do before I even added the chickpeas, I would probably cook down a bunch of tomatoes. Yeah. You know, cook them down until they're a nice pulp. And then if you add the, the chickpeas after that, you can add them already cooked because if you if you try to cook the tomatoes or the chickpeas in with the tomatoes, yeah, you want to do that. It'll just take forever, you know. And
1: like, how much salt? Just enough.
0: Enough. Terry, <laughs> enough salt.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I just had to do that, okay.
0: Well, I mean, you know this too. Like yeah. the number one the number one thing like that makes somebody a good cook versus not a great cook. Good palate. Is is that good cook's use lots of salt?
1: They do. Sometimes I get a little heavy handed. I gotta I gotta watch that.
0: It's only heavy handed if you if you taste it and you're like, Oh, I taste salt. Yeah. But you know, like I you know how I you know how I visualize it when I'm trying to get the salt level right? Is I think about um I think of salt as being like um the focus on a camera. Oh. You know, like when you get when you get the salt level just right, everything gets sharp and it all gets into the right relation. And nothing like Nothing stands out unless you want it to. Good perspective. That's kind of how I think about it. Cause I like, like it. Salt is, salt's, salt's tough.
1: Yeah. N- too much, Oof. can't go back on that one.
0: But it's hard to, it's hard to salt too much, I think. Yeah. It's definitely happened, you know. You know what else makes things taste really good? Yeah. Wine.
1: <laughs> I knew, I knew it was going to be something like of the spirit world. See, every,
0: <laughs> every dish loves a tasty beverage too. Ease it down. Of course. I asked Homer's own wizard of wine, Skip Clary. Oh, yes. To choose something to drink with chickpeas. And he picked a Gigal Cote du Rhone white wine. And he sat down with Megan Curlin at Station 12 to talk about tasting wines and why he picked this particular one to go with Hummus. <music>
2: So I am not a wine drinker. So when I smell this, mm-hmm. it smells like wine. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. pretty so, much as far as I go with that. So
3: we can take that somewhere. When you're tasting wine, well, actually, what I, sh- I should back up and say, smelling a wine will tell you a lot more about it in terms of what its, what its character is, um, aromatically and flavor-wise. Because if you look at your your sense of taste, they've broken that into kind of just a, a handful of primary characteristics, sweet, sour, bitter, salt, umami, I guess is the other one you can throw in if you want. So five primary flavors and all the things that you will ever taste in your life will be a combination of those small number of characteristics. However, with your sense of smell, you have, I think they've identified at least 16 primary aromas. And so if you can imagine the complexity of what you can smell versus what you can taste, it's massive. Mm-hmm. It's just massive. So when I smell a wine, I, I'm getting a lot more information off it than when I'm tasting it. To, to go to pretty much a basic understanding of how to taste wine... you're you're going to be looking at very basic categories like fruit, spice, flowers. Um, There will be wood influence on some wines but not all. And then there's other kind of (laughs) in the other category like Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, cat pee. You can definitely get a eau de litter box off that and that's not a, a derogatory term. It's just There it is. And you can't deny it. So you get, uh, like on this wine, um, just to kind of get things started. I pick up things like maybe peach and nectarine rather than apple. It's it's more of stone fruit, Mm -hmm. but also um, there's a little bit of floral on that. This tends to be more like spring, kind of like a generic blossom, like apple blossom, peach blossom there. Mm -hmm. It's just that white flowers.
2: It just smells like your average White wine to me, I guess. right? It's, okay. There's nothing that stands out that mm-hmm. is amazing to me. Right. Yeah.
3: So what we're gonna do is, when you taste the wine, rather than just knock it back and swallow it, give it a give it a good chew so that okay. it gets all around in there. There's a thing. Uh, I'm kind of loath to try and get somebody to do this if they haven't done it before, but there's a. Okay. If you do that, it aerates across your olfactory bulb, which sits at the back of the palate, and there's just a ton of nerve endings back there. Okay. Give it a good chew, swish it around. Not super high in acid. Yeah. Definitely got some alcohol. Mm-hmm, um, I feel
2: that for sure.
3: I picked this wine to go with, uh, this is for the, the chickpea, I'm just gonna go ahead and pull some hummus off my cracker here. Creamy texture, and that's why I picked the wine for this. It lets the flavor of the hummus come through. There's enough acidity that can slice through the olive oil a little bit, but you want your hummus to be nice creamy texture. You can taste the tahini still. Mm -hmm. I think the wine basically, in this case, serves more like just a a very mild sauce, if you will. And that's quite often, that's how I like to pair wines. I don't want them to overpower the dish.
2: Yeah, yeah, cause I do like following the hummus with the wine, cause it's yeah. less winey tasting. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs>
3: exactly. Um, <laughs> this wine has been through a process called um, secondary malolactic fermentation. It's not an alcohol fermentation. Malic acid is the acidity that you get in apples. It's a very tart, bright acidity. What happens is these enzymes will convert malic acid to lactic acid, like cream, milk. Mm-hmm. That gives the wine a much creamier texture, uh, which is why we have this with the hummus rather than something that's got that really bright malic acid in it. You want something that's kind of buttery, creamy, a, a more lush mouthfeel. It just makes you think of smooth. This just stays on a nice, even keel and lets the food do the talking. And I, that's, that's why I picked it. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. Cause most of my, um, existence is just like eat as fast as you can and like drink whatever's around you really quick and just get it over with and move on to the next thing you need to do in life. And I never really take the time to like you know, consider what I'm eating mm-hmm. um, and what I'm drinking.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of people are in, in the same boat. Um, they, just, they just want a glass of wine or they just want a beer. They just want to get mm-hmm. it done, you know, and
2: But it is nice to take the time to do that Mm -hmm. when you do have the time to do that. Or most of my meals are just like, what's quick and what's easy? And what can we do in 20 minutes? Because I got this kid that won't leave me alone. Okay.
3: I would get two things. I would get two things. A really nice bottle of dry rosé and a babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) That pair is great. (laughs) Really nice pairing. So basically, um, that's... That's, yeah. that's the tasting of wine. No, it is, uh, it in is a, really
2: interesting, yeah. Cool. yeah. To, cool. To stop and take a second. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do that.
3: My pleasure. And I don't and get it often. I, I really like it when people are happy to ask questions and not worry about, oh, I don't describe it like a professional. I don't, I don't know what the right term is. It's like, right, no, yeah, oh, no, 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 no. Everybody good. has got taste buds. They don't necessarily have the vocabulary to describe it and so for this yeah i would say stone fruit floral rich palette really creamy mouthfeel to it it's it's bright enough acidity but not too much so i think with something like hummus it it totally works
0: We really had a lot of fun that day with uh with skip tasting. And I really I was glad that I was glad that Megan opened the gets the first one because she talks about, you know, she's not really into wine. And I wish that I wish I had it recorded later that day where she was still talking about how tasting that white coat durone with the hummus and suddenly seeing like the textural similarities between the hummus and the wine, like she was like she she couldn't believe it. It's like, a revelation. Yeah, it was like she, it. it was like little curtains opened, and she was all of a sudden seeing this world that she hadn't ever seen before.
1: Gosh, I'm sorry I missed that.
0: And it was it was great, you know. I mean, we're we're really lucky to have somebody like Skip around. Skip here. Skip is
1: very very good and very enthusiastic and very knowledgeable.
0: But you see, he talks about it. He talks about the wine being like a mild sauce to the food, which is exactly what you said when I said, "Hey, what would be a good sauce for the baji?" And you said, "Beer." <laughs>
1: Well, that's, you know, the alcohol sauce.
0: but And, oh, how
1: about avocado? You know, a little avocado and lime.
0: That um, would be rich.
1: That would be rich, but, you know, just a little bit.
0: We know. do have a caller. <gasps> Excellent. On line one, we have Suzanne. Hello, Suzanne. Hey,
2: how's it going?
0: All right, how are you? What are you curious about today?
2: Well, I cook a ton of garbanzo beans. I buy them actually in 25-pound bags of organic, so I'm pretty familiar with them. But I read a strange little tip this summer how you could use the liquid to make meringue. And I know that when you open cans, there's sort of a gelatinous liquid that I, I don't use the cans, but I've seen it. So I'm just wondering if you if they're talking about that stuff or the liquid that's actually left after I cook the garbanzo beans at home, or if both would work. Know anything about that?
0: I you are talking about aquafaba.
2: Oh yeah.
1: And they
0: call it they call it that because fava is like Latin for fava beans, basically. And this is this is actually something I had heard of it. I hadn't really done it ever. I just did it yesterday for this show because when I was looking into chickpeas, I was like, "Man, I was like, if I'm ever going to do anything with aquafaba, I better do it now." And I'm glad that you called because I have some things to say.
2: Awesome. Well, if, even if it's not good, it's fun to say aquafaba. It I'm going to tell you what
0: it is good. Okay, it's amazing. And you will, you know, and I, I, I thought that probably the same thing that you thought the first time that you heard about it, which is, I looked at, I looked at, dumped out the the beans. And I looked at the liquid there was that there was there in the bowl and the strainer. And you and said, I, "Say what?" And I smelled it, <laughs> and I was like,
1: uh-uh.
0: "Nah, nah, beanie." Eh. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, aquafaba, it first came to prominence like ten or fifteen years ago by some food bloggers, basically, who were also vegans. And vegans, they have to spend a lot of time getting clever about what they can eat because mm-hmm. it can be limited. No eggs. So, so they wanted to, especially with like pastry, you know, because like so much like pastry and dessert stuff is like involves eggs, mm-hmm. you know, so how are you going to eat sweets if you don't have eggs? And they figured out, I, I'm, if, if I remember correctly, what they did is they looked at the protein structure of egg whites and they looked at the protein ah. structure of bean liquid and they were like, they're pretty similar. Maybe they'll whip. <laughs> oh. So they dumped some, some bean liquid out of their cans of garbanzo beans In their KitchenAid, they put the whisk on and they let her go. (laughs) And lo and behold, this foam started. So then they're like, well, let's see what happens. So then they added sugar like you're making a regular meringue. And they're like, wait a minute. It's beaten up like a meringue. It's got peaks like a meringue. It looks like a meringue. They tasted it and it didn't taste like beans. It tasted like meringue. Because, I mean, really, egg whites don't have any flavor of their own. Any flavor that it gets is coming from the sugar. And so they figured out. Well, then they baked it, and it bakes just like a meringue. And then they now they do like Terry. You found a list of like oh all the gosh. stuff that they're doing with this
1: pavlovas, lemon meringue pie, um, nougat, fudge, baked Alaska, strawberry ice cream, yeah, buttercream, marshmallow fluff.
0: And they're using this liquid from canned beans. And and you asked, like you said, you you do most of your uh, chickpeas cooking from scratch. They said you can use. Um, the bean, the the liquid from beans that you would uh, that you cooked from dried, but it's a little it's a little more challenging because you might if you have a lot more water than you would have in the canned chickpeas, you might have to reduce it some because the critical uh, factor is the protein structure versus the water. So if it's too thin, then it won't whip up because you have too much water. Right.
2: So, well, I'll give that a try. I think it's pretty interesting. I actually brought it up. Was sitting around with a group of friends this summer, and I said it, and they all just looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere. I didn't just bring it out of the. It my sounds brain, totally so. nuts,
0: but yeah, if you want to try it with with dried, what I would say is is get a can of chickpeas and dump it and dump it out and look at it, and then try to get the consistency of your. Of of the liquid that you made from scratch to be about the same. Okay,
2: awesome. I'll give it a try. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks and, for calling in.
0: And Terry, I made so like I said, you know, I made a, I made something with it the first time yesterday specifically for this show because I was like I have to do it and I brought them into the to the station today, and all they are they're they're simple little meringue kisses. I made them with equal weight, exactly like I would make a regular egg white meringue. Equal weights, uh, uh, aquafaba. And sugar Sugar. and a little dash of cream of tartar and a little shot of vanilla extract. And Terry, could you tell the difference?
1: Oh, my gosh. No, they were fabulous. And I have a very I'm really, really impressed with what you do with these. So no,
0: and everybody in the station was like, you know, they all. I, I didn't tell them what it was. I just gave. Them, I was like, here's some meringues, right. and they eat them, and they're like, oh, these are awesome. These are great. And I'm like, well, they're vegan. They're yeah. like, what?
1: No bean flavor. It was just like you were eating egg white meringues. Yeah, they were fabulous.
0: It was it was unbelievable.
1: So there you go. They they figured something out. Science experiments. I'm glad that you made them because that they're, they're, we could share that.
0: I know. Well, it's it. it it's not something you would just think about, you know, but it's it's it, now it's like, you know, because a, a lot of egg white meringues, you use those because, you know, you've used the eggs to make like right. custard or the, the filling for a cream pie, you know, so now you have all these, all these uh, meringues mm-hmm. left over or this white leftover. so can you can make, make meringues mer- and they don't take long. And this is like, so now you've turned the whole can of garbanzo beans into a vegan egg because it you can use the to... garbanzo beans for other stuff. Sure.
1: Yeah. And they don't take long. A little almond extract in there. Oh, yeah. Delicious.
0: We are just about at the end. I think we're going to have to say goodbye to everybody for this week. I would like to thank my guest, Terry Roble, for coming in to this very first episode of an ongoing series produced here at KBBI, Check the Pantry.
1: Thank you. It was great. Thanks, Terry. You're welcome. Anytime.
0: Check the Pantry is produced at the studios of KBBI in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. The cooking and tasting segments were recorded at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907 235 4226 or email alaska at station12.com. This is the first episode of the first season of Check the Pantry.